You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Adam Dunn, an Associate Professor in the Centre for Health Informatics at Macquarie University. Adam and his team use informatics and social media data in their clinical research related to public health. Informatics, the structure, behaviour and interactions of natural and engineered computational systems, is very much related to the idea of a single butterfly flapping its wings to potentially create a hurricane on the other side of the earth. In this episode, we explore complex systems and the sweet spot between chaos and perfect harmony. We look at information avalanches, cryptography and algorithms, and what all this means on a practical level. For example, factors that influence how bushfire travels over the Australian landscape, or how human diseases spread through a population. Adam discusses modelling patient safety in hospitals and how he and his team aim to improve health behaviours and health literacy. They use large-scale data from news and social media to track anti-vaccine sentiment and the correlations with vaccine coverage in a particular geographic region. Adam and I explore how the public takes up both evidence and misinformation and also how marginalised communities might be better represented in public health research with the use of large-scale data. Here's my conversation with Adam Dunn. So hello, Adam. Hi. Here we are at the Centre for Health Informatics, uh, also known as the Australian Institute of Health Innovation on the grounds of Macquarie Uni. Uh, So I understand you've been here a long time and a short time or something like that. So yeah, that's right. Uh, so I originally joined the Centre for Health Informatics uh, more than 10 years ago, but at that time we were at UNSW in a lovely building in right next to Coogee. Um, we eventually moved over here to Macquarie University from UNSW in 2014, late 2014. Uh, and so we've, we've been here at Macquarie University ever since. And so what, what, what happens here? What do you do? What do I do? What I do in the Centre for Health Informatics is to look after junior researchers and send emails most of the time. But in in general, the work that we do in health informatics is about trying to improve people's health outcomes uh, using things like data science and machine learning. Okay, a few key terms here, informatics, data science, machine learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll get to that, but could you just give us a background as to how you as a, as an individual, but like what was what's your background? For example, did you did you study like are you a doctor or do you have a medical background or do you have a I don't know tell it tell us a little bit more about that. So I don't have a medical background. So I've been working in faculty of medicine for for more than ten years now. So I've learned a little bit, but my background's actually in computer science, kind of also maths and physics. So when I was an undergrad, I did um, <clears throat> science and engineering and. Uh, I did a fair bit of cryptography in my sort of undergraduate times. What's what's cryptography? Cryptography is uh, the study of ciphers and codes. It's how you encrypt things to send them securely over the internet, for example. Okay. Yeah. I still um, am a little unclear what that means. Like a, like a kind of, um, what do you like a lock or something like. Yeah, that's right. So basically what happens is that you take some information that might be a, a message, and we call that a plain text, and then you transform it into something that no one can read, pass it, a, pass it through secure communications, and uh, then you can unencrypt it at the other end so people can read it. And really when I was doing cryptography, I was much more interested in just the pure maths. So I was never interested necessarily in the IT of it, but I loved the idea that... Uh, uh, Cryptography could take a message and you could change one character in the original message and it would change more than half of the characters in the encrypted message. There was this idea of kind of an avalanche and the idea of an avalanche was that was that a tiny change in one part of a thing would lead to a giant change um, in, in the output. And so if you change one character in the, in the plain text you get a big change in the encoded text, the text that's just a garbled mess of, not, of anything. So that, I guess that's the point in a way, 
of cryptography, I'm, I'm assuming, that to, to create that garbled mess, but then you're going to put that the kind of secret secret symbol in mm-hmm. at the other end and then unscramble everything. That's right. That's right. So what you want in a good crypto- cryptographic algorithm is that a small change here would lead to a large scramble. Uh, yeah. And that's the, 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 the measure of what makes a good algorithm. And actually, the interesting thing about cryptography and the idea of the avalanche and the scramble flowed through into the, exactly the work that I did from then on. So when I started my PhD, I was actually looking at an area called complex systems. And complex systems is often about you know, the story of the, when a butterfly flaps its wings in one place and it creates a hurricane somewhere else is exactly the same idea that we have with cryptography, where a small change here can lead to a giant avalanche um, further down the track. So I studied complex systems uh, and this area in sort of maths and physics and computer science uh, for my PhD, which was really about modeling bushfires. Okay, you're, you're painting quite a range of metaphors here, and then I, I'm suspecting that the um, that bushfires is literally bushfires and, and smoke. Can you tell us, well, I was going to ask you what, what are some examples of some of these complex systems, so maybe this is a, a really great example. Talk well, us through what, what, what you were doing, or what, what's to be studied in a bushfire. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, a bushfire is a classic example of a complex system um, where you know a small change can propagate through a landscape. And a lot of what I was doing for my PhD was actually around understanding how different factors can influence the spread of bushfires over a landscape. So the most important things to a bushfire include the fuel, how much there is. Fuel um, being the, all the leaves, the and, leaves the and, and the bark and the trees and, and all those different things. Uh, the strength and the direction of the wind and the terrain and the slope of the terrain. And oh, all yeah. these factors interact together to change the shape and the speed at which a, a, a fire front progresses. So we, we're surrounded by fires at the moment, we being are. late or you know mid-December 2019, mm-hmm. Sydney's kind of in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Can you can you give us just talk through one like a something that's happened recently, just in terms of this sort of complex system? Well, I mean the the most the most interesting uh, issue with bushfires, especially in Australia and the kind of landscape we have, is what happens when the wind changes direction. So there's these old equations um, that were invented by a guy named Rothamel, um, I think in 1972, and they would help us predict the elliptical shape that a, that a fire would travel in, a fire front would travel in, um, if we're progressing through a landscape under windy conditions. And you can imagine uh, an ellipse uh, where the pointy end is the direction of the wind. But what happens when the wind changes direction is that the front of that ellipse becomes the side of the ellipse. And so you now have this very large... An ellipse is like a squashed egg shape. Like a right? squashed egg shape, yep. exactly. Um, so the front of the, of, of the fire now becomes the side of the ellipse and becomes much, much larger. That oh, makes I fires see. Yep. much, much more dangerous as well. Because the fire, instead of just being a pointy ellipse going in one direction along the shape of the top of the egg, it now becomes the side of the egg and becomes much more deadly and much more dangerous because it's much larger. And that's happened repeatedly um, around Sydney in the last few weeks and has caused some very large bushfires. Um, some of the bushfires have a, have a footprint larger than the size of Sydney. Mm. And so I guess to, like when you when you see weather predictions or the, you know, the, the, the cold change is coming, I guess that, that sort of information helps um, people predict how the fire might behave, mm-hmm. or at least have some sort of likelihood that you know, we, better, we better kind of contain it now, otherwise it will really, the, once that wind changes, it'll be a lot worse type thing. That's exactly right. And uh, in terms of trying to predict where fires might spread, uh, in the olden days, when I was younger and doing my PhD, we didn't have access to the kinds of data and the, and the good maps of, of exactly what was happening on the ground at the time. Uh, things have progressed um, dramatically since I finished my PhD, and uh, hopefully they've got a lot more access to a lot more data now. But in, in a sense, the lack of access to data meant it was very hard to do a PhD on bushfires. So what was, what was the drawing, what, what drew you to that? Like you kind of... Um 
you were interested in maths, you were interested in complex systems. Uh, it, was that kind of like on offer or did someone recommend bushfires or it's kind of, tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Uh, it was purely based on my um, love for complex systems. So when I studied cryptography, the thing that interested me most was this idea of an information avalanche that would create a scrambled mess based on a small change in a, oh, in yep. a character. And complex systems is really about that. It's about um, creating feedback loops and, and things where unexpected things can happen as a consequence of small changes. And this was always really interesting to me. And bushfires were a nice example of that. But bushfires are certainly not the only example of complex systems. What's, what are some others that, that you, you've looked at? Well, one of the other ones is uh, uh, the spread of diseases through a population, uh, which is an interesting one. Others, other complex, classic complex systems examples might include um, how people, how pedestrians walk through a shopping mall, or how pedestrians might walk through a shopping mall when there's an emergency. And uh, there's all sorts of different um, uh, complex systems that rely on the individual behaviours of the individual components um, summing together to create something that is is more interesting than that. So those components might be a, like a piece of a, a little speck of dust yep. or a human being yep. or a, I don't know, anything. Really. A car, a piece of information. It could be anything. Yeah, okay. So what, like I guess I just wanted to round off how you came to, to kind of become involved in the um, in health innovation. Like what was the kind of, if it was a stepping stone or, you know, how did that progress? Well, that's a much less interesting story. So when I was working as a postdoc in Curtin University over in Perth, um, I saw an opportunity to come to Sydney and work on modelling patient safety in hospitals. And I... What, do, what does that mean for, just in lay terms, modelling patient safety? Well, in this case, we were talking about what the kinds of problems that can cause safety events or safety issues inside of hospitals. That might be someone being um, misidentified as the wrong person. It might mean that they're, they're being operated on the wrong leg. It might be that... A bit of a problem. It might be the uh, lack of attention that causes a fall. It could be any of the things that might, might lead to um, uh, poor outcomes um, that could have been prevented inside of a hospital. So what's, what, what's this, the term modelling? What does that mean? Well, that's a, that's a big question, that one. Uh, in a sense, modelling is really about trying to explain what happens in the world. Complex systems uh, research has always been about trying to explain things that are really hard to explain because they're completely unpredictable. And we try and understand, we build models to try and understand how, how unusual and unexplainable events happen in the world. That might be a, a, a very large bushfire, it might be a patient being harmed, it might be a giant traffic jam. Those are the kinds of things that are, can be hard to predict because, you know, the world around us is built of chaos. And chaos. Oh, so this is definitely, it, it sounds like it's definitely in within chaos theory. You, you hear of chaos theory. Yeah, look, I'm not an expert at all in chaos theory, but essentially complex systems is the world that sits on the border of chaos and perfect harmony. And uh, perfect chaos is perfectly predictable because nothing ever works. And everything that's completely homogeneous is easy to predict because everything stays the same. And there's this sweet spot right in the middle, which is where complex systems sits. And they often call it the edge of chaos. And the reason why is because it can produce these behaviours that are interesting, beautiful, amazing, but they aren't chaos and they aren't homogeneity. They sit right in, on this fancy sweet spot right in the middle. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So it seems uh, apparent that you've got a lot of um, thinking going on, more may, possibly more than your average person. Lots of analysing, lots of kind of calculations, lots of, um, I don't know, just sort of uh, brain, your brain is active. I, I particularly liked the um, use of metaphor, or 
well, like an avalanche is literally an avalanche or bushfire or the butterfly effect, but they seem like they're, they're nice kind of um, examples to, to kind of help people understand what, what sort of territory you work in. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I like the idea of, of, of analogies, but I'm also kind of a very practical person at heart. I, I like to solve problems and I like things that, that um, are, I like problems that I can grab hold of and try and understand. I kind of also like being the first person to solve problems. I see. Well, public health is a very, a very nice, solid problem to solve. So what sort of, um, you know, have you been the first to solve something, you know, in terms of your recent research in public health or, or health, health innovation? Uh, to be fair, you know, there's, we're always building on the, the good work of people that have come before us. But I think one of the things that, that is really exciting about the work that, that I've been doing and my team's been doing in public health informatics recently uh, is uh, the work that we do looking at social media data. And um, in the past, some of the problems that we've had with social media data is we've, we've tried to count up how many times people say things and then make inferences about them. And I'll give you a, a clear yeah, example of that. one of those practical examples. Exactly. So, um, so a lot of the work that we do in this space is around uh, anti-vaccine sentiment. And so we're looking at uh, people who are vocal critics of vaccination, um, who are um, uh, saying things that, that vaccines are not safe, that where, they're where not Where are they useful. saying these sorts of things? Sorry to, to, yeah. to interrupt, but where, where, what sort of social media? Like they're saying that vaccines aren't safe. Is this on like... Facebook, for example? Absolutely. So Facebook, Twitter, um, but of course the, the the social media landscape changes all the time. So in the old days we might have been talking about Facebook and Twitter, but at these days we might also be talking about Snapchat, TikTok, WhatsApp. It could be any of these it's things. It's hard to keep Instagram, up. There's new ones popping up all the time. Exactly. So a lot of the work that, that my, my group has been doing in the past has been uh, on Twitter. And so we focused a fair bit on Twitter because it's the easiest to access data for. If we were talking before about accessing data about landscapes and bushfires, that was tough at the time. Uh, it's still tough to access data for a lot of social media platforms, but one that we can do is Twitter. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to uh, some of the stuff you said earlier about the, the kind of back in the olden days type thing, there was less data. Mm. But now, I guess, especially over the last sort of say 15, 20 years, there's seems like this that's almost defines our current era all that we're just surrounded by measurement data um people uh, i don't know sharing like you used that word sentiment that's kind of literally they're writing down what they think or what they believe or what they want to communicate to the world in characters so talk us through how what what you're investigating as such in say the example of twitter or Sure. Look, let's go back a step, oh, though, yeah? because I reckon uh, social media is this really interesting place where people may or may not be saying what they actually believe. So we don't always okay. know whether or not they're just being performative <laughs> or not. Oh, but, performative. But here's the thing, right? Social media is kind of like the, the telescope of our era. When, when telescopes were invented, the idea was that we were able to then see things in a, more, in a way that we have never been able to look at them before. It doesn't mean that the stars and the planets didn't exist before we had telescopes. It was that we were able to shine a new light on them or at least to be able to observe them in ways that we were never able to before. There's this classic example of a, of, um, of a, a sci-fi book. I think it was called Man on the Moon. Um, and it was an idea of uh, two men traveling to the moon to, um, to see what was there. And it was the first time they were ever able to go there. They land on the moon. It's full of plants, animals, atmosphere, all sorts of interesting things. And of course, we know that's now wrong. But, of, but back when that book was written, uh, at a, around 1900, uh, we had no idea whether or not there were vegetables and plants on the moon uh, because we could only see it you know, reasonably well. But now that we're able to see it much more closely and much more directly, we know much more about it. Social media is the telescope of our age now because in the past, it's not that 
anti-vaccine sentiment and people's opinion didn't exist. It's just that we're now able to observe them en masse and we're now able to analyze them en masse. Mm -hmm. And so that's the beauty of social media. It's not a perfect telescope into the into human behavior, but it is a way of measuring things about human behavior. And so sometimes what one of the problems that we've had with social media research, and remember, social media hasn't been around that long, so no. research on social media has only been around for a decade or so, or two. And uh, the problem is that we've been looking at it and been making assumptions about what social media actually represents. And so a lot of the research in, 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 on social media, especially in public health, has made assumptions that what people are saying and how often they say it is a reflection of the real world. Yeah. And it's, it's not, right? If you think about it, if people are tweeting a hundred times uh, yes. about, about vaccines being not safe, doesn't it matter whether or not those hundred tweets are seen by other people? Yeah, like they, they may... What do you... Uh, they may or may not be seen by other people or they might not be seen by anyone and so there's a <clears throat> there's some nice examples of uh, essentially bad research that have come out in the last sort of five years or so where people have counted up the number of times people tweet anti-vaccine things or pro-vaccine things and they've decided that if there's enough anti-vaccine sentiment if there's enough anti-vaccine tweets then that must be causing vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal in yeah, the population. Yeah. But it doesn't matter if thousands of people have tweeted anti-vaccine tweets, if only those same people have seen the tweets. Yeah, it's like, a, you know, if a, if, a, if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one to observe it, uh, did it really fall at all? That's exactly right. And so, so the work that we've actually been doing recently is kind of exciting in this area because we don't, we don't just count up the number of tweets. We actually try and look at exposure. We look at people's information diets. We try and sample a population or sample social media users at least, and then try and understand how often it's likely that they were exposed to positive and negative things about vaccination. And this measure of exposure um, is a much more interesting and much more useful way to study social media research. So if I was going to go back and say what it is that was the first time we solved a problem that nobody else had solved before, um, we were the first to use information exposure to look at um, um, vaccination. Uh, and in our case, we were looking at human papillomavirus vaccination. So it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it focuses on the, the receive or the potential person receiving the information rather than 100,000 tweets going out or 100,000 Facebook posts. It's really exactly. who's who's potentially seeing those. And then what was the next bit, the, the bit about the virus? Well, that's the interesting part. So uh, even if lots of people are exposed to information risks, and we to be fair, we just treat information the same way as you might treat something like passive smoking or another kind of environmental risk, right? You know, if if you, you can be you can have a population that's exposed to lots of um, I don't know bushfire smoke, and you might see an increase in the incidence of asthma, or some other respiratory problems, right? So for Twitter, the idea is that we want to look at whether or not people are being exposed to more negative sentiment or negative opinions about vaccination, and see whether or not there's a correlation between their exposure to negative things and the vaccine coverage in those locations. So we don't predict, in the, so far we haven't predicted whether or not an individual person is likely to refuse or delay vaccination for themselves or their children. But what we do is we look at a region, a city, a population. And so the, the, the most interesting recent models that we built were to look at whether or not the exposure to information, the exposure to negative information, was correlated with vaccine coverage. And it turns out that we can build a model that explains vaccine coverage for HPV vaccines using only information from Twitter, and we can build models that are better, more accurate, than the models that are built using education, income, people who have health insurance or not, those kinds of demographic and health-related um, you know, census bureau data type 
uh, stuff rather than the, the Twitter thing. So it turns out that what, peop- what information people are exposed to is a pretty good indicator of whether or not that location is going to have more or less uh, vaccination. So I, I guess in research that kind of, would you say it's, there's a correlation? That's right. So we're not saying that uh, information exposure causes uh, lower vaccination at all. What we're saying is in places where vaccination is lower, there's a lot more negative sentiment floating around. Mm. And so that, and then again, that would take the form of uh, their friends and neighbours or people they don't even know uh, saying bad things about vaccinations are causing um, something. Or, you know, they're really bad, you shouldn't do it. That's exactly right. So, so Twitter and the information exposure that we're measuring at, at massive scales. So we're talking hundreds of thousands well, of people. In that's another location. thing, yeah. Yeah, I was going to, uh, the thought came to mind that in this territory, as I understand, it's, it's big data is that's a thing. Right. Can yeah. you talk through what, like big data, what's kind of, what does that mean in terms of an individual versus huge numbers or, you know, what's... Just as well, 25 look, words or less, maybe. No, no. <laughs> However many words it takes. Well, look, that's a that's a um, a really interesting question. Um, so, in in public health, we're often and population health, we're often dealing with um, populations. So, we're we're trying to change health outcomes. We're trying to change the things that can influence large numbers of people. Um, so, we're not predicting um, uh, what an individual will do. Um, or an individual's opinion, or any of those things, we're looking at we're looking at um, at scale. Um, big data is an unusual term. Uh, we often avoid using the term big data because it has this kind of you know pop culture reference, uh, and it's poorly defined. I mean, is it does it count as big if there's a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million? There's no real number that separates big data from bespoke data really so that's one of those terms already by the sounds of it if i'm reading your tone correctly that that's that's entered the popular conversation but really people don't know what it really is or it's kind of shifting rapidly and then it's kind of used as though people know what it means but really it's kind of not it's still kind of fluffy maybe yeah absolutely look what's the if if we build models that use big data and we try and find correlations in large populations, is that going to help us to convince someone that they probably should vaccinate their kids? Yeah, I like. I very much like that. The practical frame of all of this conversation. It's not like um, analysing numbers and statistics for the sake of it, or going off on, on a big tangent of you know. What does that look like? A cloud of um, chaos. It's it's linked back to observable, practical. Um, well, I guess their health outcomes, but their behaviours of populations to do a certain thing, like vaccinate or vaccinate their children, yeah. or other. I mean, just as a, a tiny little tangent, what are some other big public health kind of um, things in this of this nature, like not vaccinations, something something else that's kind of dealt with in a similar way? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily dealt with in a similar way, but some of the some of the problems that, are, that I think are, are current and interesting in public health that we really need to deal with, there's some that have been around f- for a long time and will continue to be around for a long time, including cardiovascular risk and things that we can deal with. Um, but uh, vaping and e-cigarettes is a current one that's, a, that's an issue. Uh, so in the United States, you, we've seen a massive growth in the number of the number of young people who never smoked before, but have taken up vaping. Um, and that that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Yeah, I guess they've sold on the fact, well, it's not really smoking. And then, but there's other health, health effects. Exactly, but the most interesting thing about vaping, of course, is that it's a social phenomenon. So uh, the reason why people might take up vaping is because they see what other people are doing in the same space and they think it's cool. So vaping has been sold, sold, advertised, marketed 
um, around the world, not just not just in the places where we've seen a large take-up, because of these social networks, this information exposure. And so I think that probably one of the interesting things we can do in the future is to look at um, how social factors influence the uptake of vaping in, in particular in young people who've never smoked before. Yeah, so, so just to kind of think broad, broadly, in social media research, the, the research that you're doing, it, would it be true to say that the opinions, the opinions and attitudes are shaped by communities, like face-to-face -face communities, as well as those online communities? Well, that's a really important point. So the way we use Twitter data and the way we might use Facebook data, Instagram data, any of these other sources of data that we might use is that they're a proxy, right? We're not trying to say that people are being influenced by what's being said on Twitter. We're trying to say that we can measure uh, what people are influenced by because Twitter becomes a decent proxy for understanding uh, the things that go on in people's lives. For example, if I'm following the World Health Organization and the CDC and a bunch of scientists, I'm a certain kind of person with a certain kind of information exposure. They might not recognize by, from the Twitter data that I'm accessing scientific articles and other things outside of Twitter and my direct friends and colleagues all happen to be other scientists and people who would you know, have a certain kind of opinion but we can sort of predict that based on who I follow on Twitter, right? So it becomes a, a proxy for what happens in the rest of my life, in a sense. Yeah, so it's proxy. I understand like the definition of like a proxy is like a substitute. Mm -hmm. So can you just give us just that little bit more info detail about, you know, what, what, what does that mean? Like, it, like is, it is it a reliable measure for human systems or is it kind of I don't know um, I'm not sure what my question is but <laughs> well, look, it's, it becomes well I mean and, and you're right not to because this becomes an incredibly complicated area um, the one of the problems we have is that people who are on social media may not be like other people um, and so we always have this problem with bias so let's take an individual person on Twitter they happen to have a Twitter account, they happen to use a Twitter account, they happen to be exposed to the kinds of information on Twitter. They may not look like anybody else off Twitter, and when we measure who they're, who they're being exposed to, the people they follow and the kinds of things they engage with and retweet, that may not be a necess necessarily be a perfect substitute for what they do in the real world. They might have multiple Twitter accounts. All these things can introduce kinds of biases that affect how we, how we judge and understand that person. And so what we rely on in a lot of cases for using big data is that once we have enough people in our sample, we can make some assumptions about the biases that exist in those data as well. So even though we might not be able to predict you in your, uh, individually based on your Twitter data and we might not understand you as a Twitter user, once we have 10,000 examples of people like you, then we can start to, to draw inferences and make and understand the patterns that exist. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So, in terms of research, I mean, I'm, I've done, uh, you know, what I would say small r research, but I, as I understand, there's in, in higher education and other spheres, capital R research with all of the processes and protocols that go with that. Um, I've only observed those and I, I, I understand it gets quite complicated and it's kind of some of those methods maybe are getting a little dated even even though they've been reliable and good in the past so could how how is like conventional research performed in this area and then how does it compare with what what are some of the other potentials look i mean the, the we have to say up front of course that the all the research that we do whether it's twitter or whether it's traditional um, kind of forms of of research they all still stick to the same rules. We still need ethics, we still need data privacy, we still need to follow all of the, 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 the methodological rigor that you would expect. 
but you're absolutely right. The, the research and, and uh, has changed. And it relates back to the, how I was talking about social media being kind of the new telescope for our age. It allows us to do things that we haven't been able to do before. And so, for example, if I was interested in the opinions of what people were had about vaccination, or I was interested in the kinds of information they were likely to be exposed to about vaccination, I'd have to ask them. And traditionally, that would be done via a survey. And so if you think about how surveys are done, we have to identify people who are willing to answer a survey. And, and that I, in itself is a thing, like that, that you get people that are willing to participate in a survey. Exactly, like exactly. And think about how we find those people. So those people might be signed up to, to, to a certain company that, that does surveys. Uh, they might be randomly called uh, on a landline, traditionally. Um, and the problem with these kinds of traditional survey methods is that they don't always reach the kind of people who they really, really need to reach. And this is especially important in some of the controversial issues that we talk about these days, especially around vaccination and mental health and sexually transmitted infections. These are problems because often these traditional survey methods are recruiting people and they don't fairly represent what we would call marginalised and underserved populations. These well, are what, what does that mean? What is, what's a marginalised and under? What was the word? Underserved population. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So these are populations that would typically be um, relatively hard to reach because they aren't in the majority, right? For example. So, for example, if I was interested in uh, sexually transmitted infections, um, it might be harder to find people who are in who go to uh, music events. Um, who belong to LGBTQI populations, it might be harder to reach the kinds of people that are having risky sex as well. It might be especially hard to reach people who are sex workers. And so the problem is not that those people are at any higher or lower risk of sexually transmitted infections, it's that we don't even know because we can't reach them to ask them those questions. So what, is a, what does a research do? What are, what are the options? Well, the options are do all the hard work to try and um, find the hard to reach populations in the places where you can reach them. But I actually think that social media can play a role here. So there is some, some preliminary early kind of evidence to suggest that uh, recruiting participants into research from social media, from Facebook, from Twitter, from other places, can help us reach those hard to reach and marginalised populations better than the traditional survey methods can. Okay, so how, how would that work? Like, how does it, do they know they're participating, you know, they would have to know that they're participating in research as part of an ethical framework? In, in some cases they have to, and in other cases they don't. So if you're, if you're doing what we call high-risk um, ethics, uh, high-risk research, the idea is that they, the high-risk ethics needs to know if you're going to introduce what's called an intervention. If you're going to change something, if you're going to interact with people and, and um, change what they're exposed to, that might be by giving them a drug or it might be by feeding them information or advertising to them or those sorts of things. Um, that's high risk and, and absolutely you need to have informed consent, which means that people need to know that they're involved in the research. In other cases, when you're dealing with big data, and especially from Twitter, where all you're ever doing is observing people, you're never reporting on them individually, you're only reporting on patterns, and you're observing people at the scale of millions or billions, uh, then uh, we don't necessarily need to have informed consent because all we're doing is observing them in a place that is public. That gets trickier um, when we're dealing with places like private Facebook groups. So where people have an expectation of privacy, we have to use informed consent as well. Uh, I'm not an expert on how ethics panels might judge research and how they might judge the, the ethics of those things. But broadly speaking, um, if you're observing a large number of people and you're not interacting with them in any way, um, that would be a lower risk ethics and you may not need informed consent. Yep. So, like, what 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 would some of the mechanisms or the methods or the processes involved? How would they, if you're using social media for this type of, um, you know, gathering data and that the processes of research, how would it work? 
compared to, say, a traditional survey? Well, this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because uh, very few people have even attempted this, and this happens to be some of the stuff that we're working on right now. So the interesting thing about uh, looking at people on social media is that if you recruit a small number of people and ask them questions to identify whether or not they might belong to a hard-to-reach or marginalised population, you might just be asking them about what they think about vaccination, for example. If we understand who those people are and we can see and we can predict their survey responses, it means that we can then use the same information to try and identify other people who might belong to the same sorts of hard-to-reach populations. And so that's what we call user profiling. And user profiling is, is typically involves using machine learning to predict the, the characteristics of an individual person. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with some of these um, elements in terms of uh, so using social media to, to expose people to ads, advertisements. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. here's a, like personas and a lot of design thinking in terms of marketing. It definitely ventures into this territory. So you're saying that, that those sort of mechanisms might actually be used uh, really well in research. That's absolutely right. So the idea of using targeted advertising um, based on machine learning methods uh, is now something that we can do to not just to target our adverts to people, but to, <laughs> but to identify people who might belong to communities where we really need to have them represented in the data that we're trying to, to understand. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of established, especially in this era, that you, you, you know that there's kind of... Uh, more going on behind under the hood type thing in terms of interacting with social media when you're b- being served an ad that you didn't really ask for. There's a, and then there's a whole machine, literally and figuratively, behind how that you were exposed to that. Yes. So, yep. what? Yeah, what's is this sort of something that's up and running now, or it's kind of you know. It, it, of course it's up and running in a sense that, that um, if you go to Google now and you look at the adverts on the side of the page, they're personalised to you. Um, in fact, the, the ranking of the things that are in the list on Google are personalised to you as well. So yes, absolutely, these things are already being used um, and they're being used to target you for specific advertising, but why shouldn't they be used to target you for, for the kinds of positive um, health interventions that might be useful? I think they can and should be, but there's some privacy risks and some other issues around that that people might not be happy with. But I'll tell you one more problem which I think is really interesting in this area. And that is, if the data that we have access to is about the kinds of people that come from the majority of the population that are willing to answer surveys, that um, represent this kind of status quo, then aren't our methods going to be designed to support people from this from the the majority of the population and is it possible that we might be neglecting people from underserved and marginalized populations because the data we have so far has come from the wrong populations and we know that this has been a problem in in the recent past where there have been examples of uh, ai based technologies that have been unfair or inequitable. Okay, we just need to unpack that sentence a little bit. AI, what AI? So AI is artificial intelligence um, and it broadly covers lots of areas, but in the recent past, it's often been used to describe the, the new things that we do in machine learning. These are to try and understand the statistical patterns that underpin everything. This is around the idea of modeling and understanding people. But at its very core, in the current era, the way these AI, artificial intelligence-based technologies and machine learning methods work is that they take lots and lots of data from a bunch of people Mm -hmm. or photos or whatever you like, and they try and make sense of it. Yeah, so they crunch it through some algorithms or something like that. And exactly. That's, that's so it's horrible lay term for quite complex systems, I'm sure. So the so the so the common most common one that you'll probably recognise is trying to understand what's in a picture, and so we know that there's uh, um, lots and lots of algorithms that have been have relied on a giant corpus of images that have been put on the internet. They're mostly pictures of cats because that's what people put on the internet. 
Um, and so now what we can do is we can use um, deep learning, which is a kind of machine learning, to predict what's in a picture based on the pixels. And so we can now have machines that say, that's a picture of a cat, or that's a picture of a person. So like a little pattern within that is kind of the, the computer figures out, all oh, right, when you've got that and this and this other thing, then it's highly likely it's going to be a picture of a cat. Exactly. And so here's the risk, right? Because there's a classic example in this area where the aim of the machine learning algorithm was to try and pick whether or not a person was likely to be a re-offender for a, in a criminal case. Well, it's a pretty, pretty uh, serious territory. Exactly. And so what this machine learning method used was information about the person, where they lived, what their crime was, all their statistics, and then tried to predict the risk of reoffending. And it turned out that the algorithm didn't do a particularly good job because it ended up predicting that African Americans were much more likely to reoffend even when that wasn't the case. And so this was a classic example where machine learning was completely unfair and inequitable. So to what degree uh, has the machine learning, like, has it, to, would the programmers sort of program their own biases into their algorithms? Is that a thing or have I explain that and raise the question no, makes sense that absolutely makes perfect sense so there's a whole bunch of reasons why these algorithms can get it wrong um, it might be because of the programmers it might be for a bunch of different reasons but one of the core reasons for why machine learning can be wrong is because the data that underpins it is not representative of the proper population that they're interested in if you have lots of pictures of cats, you're never going to be able to predict a dog. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so this comes back to the original idea of why we need to be able to reach and understand marginalized and underserved populations better. Because if they're not being represented in the data sets that we have, we're going to get our machine learning algorithms wrong. We're going to make policy decisions. We're going to make practical decisions in public health that don't properly reflect the, the needs and the requirements and the, and the reality of the populations that really need these things the most. Yeah, it's like kind of the loudest voice in the room is going to get the attention, whereas there's other people in the room that are, are quiet. They're not, they're not kind of maybe they're in the corner or maybe they're hiding under the desk or something. But I guess in a, in a kind of public health uh, system, you need to acknowledge everyone. Because that's right. part of the population. And in fact, in a lot of public health cases, we're really focused on people who are most at risk. And it turns out that people who are most at risk are often from populations that, that aren't traditionally represented in the data that we're using to make decisions about them. Is that, well, I guess it seems a little ironic, but I guess it's that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy or something as well, that kind of territory where the reason why they're maybe not receiving um, the 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 support they need is because they they haven't been acknowledged in the system. Exactly right. And so I think one of the things that we need to do in public health, and especially in the area that uses machine learning and AI to try and solve some of these big health problems, is we need to do a much better job of trying to reach these hard to reach people. And I think this is key to what we're going to be doing in the future. I think social media can play an important role in trying to reach these people. And I think we can develop new and smarter methods to be able to help build a better future and build, build better health outcomes specifically for the people that need it most and not just for the people that exist in the majority. Yeah, but uh, so are there any like tensions or what are some of the big issues that might be an obstacle or what is this a controversial area or you know what's kind of preventing all of what you're saying from happening right now? It, it can be a controversial area and one of the controversies in Australia and, and globally um, revolves around data privacy and um, people wanting to participate in research. And so if you think about it, if the people who are most likely to say no, who are most likely to be on the, the, the side of the polarized debate that says, I need my data privacy, I, I'm not going to give my data away, you can't have it, I'm opting out of my health record, all those sorts of things. If those are the people that, that belong to uh, marginalized and hard to reach populations, then of course they're not going to get represented in the data that we need to do research with. So 
that's absolutely not their fault. They're quite right to, to want to have data privacy and to not be involved in things and because they don't trust um, commercial entities, they don't trust governments, they don't, may not even trust researchers because in too many examples we've failed. You know, uh, data breaches, um, disrespecting their privacy, you know, people sign up to a business and then get a phone call from a lawyer. You know, those things are, are, are massive failures that have happened in the system. And we need to be able to move back to a, a place where we can um, engender trust in the populations that most need our help. We need to be able to work with those populations to involve them in research and we need to be able to support them better. Um, and to support them better, we really need to understand them. And to understand them, we need to be able to access their data. So in terms of all this territory, are people, you know, right to be concerned? Like in terms of data and privacy and, you know, is that what is that what is holding back some of this kind of territory or...? or the well, we, we don't really know necessarily why people are hesitant about, um, about their data, data privacy, but I can tell you they're absolutely right to be worried about data privacy because we have had so many examples of data breaches and um, problems with um, accessing data that we shouldn't have been accessing. And the, to be honest, the social media platforms have had some issues in terms of um, data privacy and influence and, and uh, whether or not they respect their products, um, which happen to be the people on the social media platforms. And so the, they're absolutely right to be worried about um, data privacy, giving away their data and all those sorts of things. But I think we need to do a much better job of bringing the people from these communities along with us for the ride, in a sense, right? We need them to be active participants in the kind of research that we're doing, and we really need them to understand that if they are active participants, we're going to be able to help their community and them much, much better. And I think that's a really important um, aspect to this research, that we aren't doing it because we're trying to understand the complex systems of the world, but we're trying to do it to make sure that we get better health outcomes for the people that, are, that really, really need them. In this episode, I chatted with Adam Dunn, an associate professor in the Center for Health Informatics. You can find more information about this episode, including links to Adam's website and blog in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.